0: and welcome to uh, this session of the Title Now pop-up webinar. I'm Melissa Murphy with the fund and I have the pleasure of hosting these pop-up webinars every week and we try to focus on topics that are of interest to fund members, to their staff, uh, to title agents and other people involved in the industry. So we try not to stick to just pure legalese and legal issues. We try to expand um, the topics that we talk about. And we also push the audio version of this or the audio content of this out on our podcast. The podcast is also called Title Now, so that makes it easy to remember. And you can subscribe to the podcast any way that you subscribe to your other podcasts, but it's a great way for you to get the same content, just through a different channel if you happen to miss the Thursday at noon session. So we're planning on continuing these pop-up webinars through the end of August, and then we're rethinking the structure of these um, offerings to you for the fall, so stay tuned uh, when we let you know what our new schedule will be. Over the years, The fund has enjoyed a fabulous relationship with Florida Realtors. We collaborate regularly um, with people over there and use each other as a sounding board and a resource for what's going on in our respective industries. A couple of our in-house attorneys here at the fund got their start over at Florida Realtors working on the legal hotline. So what is this legal hotline? That's what we're going to talk about today. Since most of you work so closely with realtors and brokers, and you depend on building a partnership with them in order to build your business, we thought you would be interested in the types of questions that are repeatedly posed to the people um, manning the legal hotline. Um, those are the experts. Those are the people that are there to respond to realtors' questions. And my guest today is Joel Maxson. Uh, Joel is the Deputy General Counsel over at Florida Realtors, but uh, most importantly for today's conversation, he's in charge of the legal hotline and manages the um, pretty significant number of attorneys that man that hotline. So, Joel. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. So I think it would be uh, very helpful and interesting to talk a little bit about the history of the hotline and the evolution of the hotline, uh, how it started, how it's changed.
1: Absolutely. Um, So the legal hotline got its start in uh, 1988, so it's about 22 years old. Um, When it started out, uh, this was... It was, I think the proposal was, would you like a lawyer to kind of. Uh, field this hotline, the CEO at the time said no we 'd like to have four lawyers, so they kind of jumped into this issue with both feet um, and and interestingly, um, speaking of long standing relationships, two of the people who started on the hotline in one thousand nine hundred and eighty eight are still employed at Florida Realtors. Uh, one of them I work with closely and I already exchanged a couple emails this morning, uh, and the other one is uh, working with our public policy department up in Tallahassee doing a little lobbying and i also i 'm going to be talking to his group for our Annual convention later today, also via uh, WebEx. Um, but the first year, the first year they rolled it out, they had about six thousand calls, which is pretty good. You know, that was a, that's a really good first year in 1988. And they jumped up that second year from about six thousand to twenty thousand. So whatever they were doing, found a market. It found a home, and and realtors really just seized on it and and took it as one of their resources and if you just kind of look at it in a graph it's gone steadily upwards ever since then um last year we fielded 74,000 calls so if yeah. you're keeping that high we went from 6,000 to 20,000 to 74,000 um yes there was a dip during the great recession i'm sure everybody felt the pinch and, and everything was kind of harder and shorter but uh we came roaring back and um that that sort of general graph has been pretty consistent so far
0: how many attorneys do you currently have staffing the hotline
1: right so we have 10 full time Stafford, it's it's a lot. I know So we have 10 lawyers and their job is to mainly watch the hotline, but to keep it from getting boring, we do other things too. And, and I'm really proud of a couple of them. Another sort of hot off the presses thing is, is one of our lawyers volunteered, um, to do a Webex because it's a little easier than having to drive. Uh, You know, one of the things I also do is drive and travel to our local boards. There's approximately 60 throughout the state and teach them courses. Um, But but our one of our hotline lawyers just did a course and she did. She did it on Fair Housing Act and Assistance Animals. And she did such a good job that she just got a repeat invitation for a neighboring board. So um, so they do other things. But we do have 10 that their main job is to answer the hotline. And then there are four of us who kind of handle the other stuff of course our general counsel joanna watkins uh oversees all of us and and then but there are four of us that kind of handle the other more interesting well i don't know if it's more interesting but uh more substantive things like contract review and contract drafting and all that all that other stuff
0: well we certainly understand here at the fund we certainly understand the concept of the um the value that something like a hotline uh, provides to our members, a place where they can just go with any kind of question that they may have, and that person can give them some direction. So I know we want to talk about sort of the top 10 topics that you all get questions about over and over at the a hotline, but I'm really interested in finding out if you got different kinds of questions once the pandemic really took hold and had an effect on realtors' business. Let's talk about that.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and, and I've, so, so one thing I will say um, I love this job and, and it's just been endlessly interesting to me. And one of the things that, that we get to do is put our finger on the pulse of. Real estate transactions throughout the state. Um, so, so generally before the pandemic, things would go on trends, but these were long, multi-year trends. You know, for example, when short sales were all the rage, it feel it felt like. 80 to 90% of our conversations were about short sales and REOs and how they're different and how their contracts work differently. Um, And and it was just, and actually that's, I started 10 years ago. So that's, I kind of walked right into that. I came from a -hmm. a, a big firm in Orlando and and I I, I walked into it. And so it was sort of, is this all it is? And then that gradually faded away and it was replaced by another multi-year trend. We're still in the middle of, which was, seller's market, multiple offers, you know, what are we doing? Uh, Did they present my offer? I feel like we were shortchanged, all these types of questions. Um, So, usually, it's a multi-year slow trend with a lot of common core themes that are constant, like advertising. But recently, we've had some pop-up issues that would basically come out of nowhere, kind of overwhelm us for a bit, and then go away a month or two later. So, so the first one we got, of course, was COVID itself, and people were saying, "I got these local orders, I got these condo association orders, I got the state order, I can't and I can't keep track of all of them." So we got this just COVID-related. How do all these orders fit together? What exactly is the rule? Um, and, and then separately, there was the the liability question. You know, some of the more savvy and, and forward-thinking people are already going, well, "Wait a minute, could I have liability here? And if so, how do I limit it?" So so COVID what took up a solid month or two and it's still there but not at all in the volumes we had it was it's sort of like they've figured out what they want to do with this issue, and they've kind of moved on. Um, And the second phase was, unfortunately, um, PUA, or unemployment assistance, which was, as you may know, extended uh, for the federal benefits to independent contractors, not just employees. Um, And that was, oh boy, uh, that was a frustrating phase, and it popped up and, and, and hit us pretty hard. Basically, people saying, how do I get it? How do I apply? What's going on? The system isn't working. On that one, it was less a legal resource uh, so much as working with our Tallahassee people to say, well, here's what we're hearing on the inside. Here's the news we're reading, and here's a place to go to get reliable resources as opposed to your friends and coworkers. So it wasn't really legal, but it was more the therapy, and also here's some sources. And the third one was the eviction ban. You know, what do we do with these tenants who aren't paying? What do you mean we can't evict? What can we do? That type of a question, which was difficult. And that one's kind of the third phase. We may see another wave of it because the recent order that just came out last week basically right. opened the door to evictions with some caveats. Right.
0: With a lot of caveats. <laughs> a lot maybe of caveats. It, maybe didn't. Um, We're all still sort of digesting the impact of this most recent executive order. What is so interesting, Joel, is that uh, we got many of the same questions here at the fund, not so much on the uh, unemployment compensation, but certainly on um, the liability part, on the um, what are the different orders. Who do I obey? Do I obey Governor DeSantis or the mayor of my city? And is what we do an essential service? Was it defined? Was it not defined? Um, There was a great deal of uncertainty around those situations. And so we also got a lot of questions. So it's just interesting um, that our respective resources I think, what are we like, three blocks from each other in Orlando? Although we're all remote now, so it doesn't really matter. Um, But we were all facing the same issues. So what are some of the um, top, when I say top 10, what I really mean are, what are some of the most recurring topics? You said something about it being a seller's market. So this yeah, you know, I think there is a duty on the part of a listing agent to present all offers that are submitted to them. So, what types of questions are you getting in today's market? Because it's my understanding that it's a food fight out there for the really good pieces of property.
1: Right. That's oh, that's that's right. Um, so that that's one of those sort of diplomatic questions that a lot of times depends on which side. So I guess I'll give my sort of overall view. Um, yes, there is a core obligation. Um, as, as the members may be aware, we, we switched largely to transaction broker status a number of years ago, so, so Realtors and real estate licensees around the state generally aren't single agents, so they don't. um, Instead, they have limited duties, but one of those limited duties that they kept, even for transaction brokers, is the duty to present all offers and counteroffers in a timely manner unless they have written instructions to not present. That offer or that type of offer. So that's a core rule and that's an ethical violation. They can be brought up on charges at their local board. And of course, the Florida Real Estate Commission could also punish them. And on top of both of those things, it's an obvious lawsuit. So yes, that is a core duty uh, to present all offers and counteroffers. What we're hearing in a seller's market is, and this is the interesting thing that I I kind of always fascinates me about the legal hotline, we're hearing two stories, it depends on which side you're on. We're hearing a lot of buyer's agents say, I suspect it wasn't presented, I suspect they took my offer and used that information to get their buyer so they could get both sides of the commission, I know they're a rotten, no good, double deal, and right, and that's essentially our calls. On the other hand, we hear from listing agents who go, I present it and they're just hounding me and we've got five offers to deal with and we've gone over them and the seller doesn't want me to tell them why or just, I don't want to talk to them. So we're kind of getting both of those calls. And, and and a lot of times the answer for us is, well, here's the rule. We can tell you the rule. We can orient you on it and we can orient you well on it, however long it takes for you to get it. What you do with this rule is up to you. And a lot of times with this, with the buyers we, uh, or the buyer's agents, we say, I'm just not hearing it. You have a proof problem. You suspect the worst, but what evidence do you have of that? You know, So so that's that's a great example of sort of a general issue that's a big trend and kind of how we attack it from both sides sometimes. And, and usually, I always like to say we orient on the rule, but we can't apply it for them. You know, there's only so much you can do on a hotline. We're, we're not their attorneys. We don't represent them. We can educate, orient, and then send them on their way.
0: And give them some guidance. I understand oh, yes. yeah, I understand that completely. Um, when you have these competing offers and then a seller decides, no, I'm not gonna sell at all, um, does that trigger questions about procuring cause? Because I know that was a common theme back when I was in practice that people debated about.
1: Oh, boy, that is a loaded question. It's a great question. It's a loaded one that has a lot of angles. So um, I'll kind of rattle off, I guess, if that's okay, the different perspectives. From a seller's perspective... um, The listing, our listing contract, our listing agreement is a pretty powerful document that gives the broker as many cards as we can. So in that situation, I'd say the listing broker is likely to have a very good case against the seller if the buyer presented an offer that met the terms or or if the seller is just not cooperating. So good case between listing broker and seller in that scenario. From a buyer's, and and that would be sort of a contract-based argument. In the absence of a contract, absolutely. You would have the case law procuring cause that could work as well, even if there's not a clear contract. That's been around for about a century, and it's sort of a squishy amorphous <laughs> rule um, that has some interesting applications. It's it's honestly one word, fairness, if you ever find yourself in that situation. Is it unfair? Did they do the work, and are they getting cut out? And, and, and it's... I, I, there's a great bar article that kind of runs through all the cases or, or a bunch of cases. And then at the end, just kind of the, the author throws up his hands and says, it's just about fairness you know, <laughs> and it's evolving. Um, on the other hand, though, from a buyer's broker's perspective, when there's an offer of compensation in the MLS, this is kind of an important piece. Um, offer of compensation, in the multiple listing service extends a unilateral, unconditional offer. All you have to do to be entitled to it is be the procuring cause. Your company procured the buyer. But there's also a, a very firm bright line rule in there that says you must get to a successful closing before you can arbitrate. And this is mandatory arbitration at the local board. So broker A who brought the buyer would, would essentially file for arbitration at the local board against the listing broker, but you have to get to closing. So in that scenario, another hard conversation is, well, I don't, you can't arbitrate. So your normal path won't work. And then we're kind of left with, Do you have a good case? Are you a third-party beneficiary of that listing agreement? These are much more complex and nuanced things that I personally go hands-off. We have differing opinions in our office on that one.
0: Are you seeing lots of um, commission disputes and questions about commission disputes?
1: Oh, we do. And this is one of those routine staples that I don't think will go away. Um, And it kind of is rooted in what I just said about the offer of compensation. I said it goes to the procuring cause, but a very common fact pattern is that a buyer or a tenant is going to work with a real estate agent and wander off. (laughs) And they start the deal with company one and they move to company two. That's the bread and butter of local board arbitrations. (coughs) Um, and, and similar to what I said about the case law, NAR has got a, a, a very detailed uh, set of instructions about arbitration. At the end of the day, it's case by case. At the end of the day, when they rule, essentially, at the local board, this panel of realtors will come out and say, the money goes to X. It doesn't set president. It doesn't... Um, they don't have to explain why um and it should be rooted in fairness um so so that's uh, that's what makes for it interesting and that is a common common conversation uh, the funny thing about that one is is on these calls i'd say about 98% of them the person calling is dead set convinced they are the procuring cause so a lot of times we end up kind of walking them back a little bit and kind of focusing on the procedure and say you might be <laughs> but here's where you go next to find out and here's how you'd frame that argument
0: do you do you get a lot of questions uh indicating that there's a dispute between the broker and the sales associate or are the are the um commission disputes between companies
1: well it's it's both so so this one's one where i, I will say we don't get too. We don't get nearly as many conversations on the broker versus associate split uh, fight. And I, I credit it to, uh, as a sort of a general idea, realtors tend to work well together. They tend to be able to resolve conversation resolve issues, talk it out, work it out, and and largely, not fight it out. Um, and that's a generalization. I know the state is very diverse in, in their sort of litigiousness, but. Um, but yes, when there are broker associates, these tend to be kind of hard conversations because most of the time it's the associate saying, I don't think I'm getting paid what I'm due. And we go, right, yes, but this is not a frack issue. This is not an uh, ethics issue. You need to invest in a lawsuit. And, and, and that's a lot of times kind of a surprise to them because they think, hey, I'm protected these rules. And I go, no, no this is a civil issue. This is a contract issue. Um, so that's litigation. Now, arbitration, what I just said, by the way, it always, it, this surprises me. I think it's, as far as member benefits go, it's it's pretty impressive. For a very low dollar amount, you know, $500 is the cap, these two brokers can go fight over the commission, which one of us is procuring cause, um, and get an answer fairly quickly in a matter of months. Um, on the other hand, when we start talking about litigation, that's the part that's sometimes the hard conversation. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it looks like that bridge is burned. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and it's just never a, a good option. Right. Um, You're not going to get a resolution in a couple of months. That's for sure.
1: Right, right.
0: Speaking of litigation, uh, recently I got a phone call from one of my fund members who was representing a uh, seller on a um, piece of property where the No, was representing the buyer and was actually representing the son and daughter of the original buyer who uh, had passed away. And their uh, deceased father had put up a binder deposit on a house. Um, The father passed away. So obviously the deal never closed, but they never claimed the deposit back. Hmm. So the question is from the um, seller's perspective is if that deposit hasn't been refunded, am I free to um, sell the house to somebody else? Um, And then the escrow agent was, am I free to disperse this money back to the son and daughter? So do you get lots of questions about, um, you know, a deal that went sour um, where the buyer has refused to close, has attempted to, or ostensibly terminated the contract. And then the seller's like, well, I don't agree. I want your deposit, but I want to put the house back on the market. Right. So uh, do you get lots of questions about that type of thing? And how do you guide the realtors?
1: We do, actually. That's that's definitely one of the biggies. Um and this one's a little bit of a thread in the needle type issue. Um, one of the themes that, that just lurks throughout our calls all the time, and we'll and it sprinkle it in like salt in calls throughout the day. It'll happen multiple times we have this conversation where we say, remember, this is their legal issue and you're just kind of representing them in the capacity of a real estate licensee. So from your perspective, please don't tell them the answer <laughs> you know i put answer in little quotation marks um but but the way we kind of frame it is if your seller instructs you that in the seller's legal opinion the, this is just to fight over money and the buyer doesn't have any claim to that contract um preferably their lawyer but realistically that doesn't happen very often on our calls because you know, if, they, if they had a lawyer they wouldn't be calling us um but but the seller instructs you that's their opinion just to fight over money. Um, you can put it back active. And then, you know, from a title perspective, we often, uh or at least I always add, by the way, they may want to check with the future title company for deal two or attorney's office. And I always push attorney's office, but although I believe title is probably the majority. And I say, hey, check with your closing agent in the future, just to make sure they're not going to have an issue with that first deal that's currently unresolved. Um, Because my understanding is that some will, some won't, and it's sort of a risk issue for them.
0: Well, it's definitely a risk assessment. I mean, how long ago, how much time has passed? Right. Um, Has the buyer whose escrow deposit hasn't been dispersed and they're fighting over, have they already bought another house and moved on? Um, Exactly. You really have to look at all the facts. And I suspect that many times your uh, folks on the hotline, I mean, you're limited to what the caller tells you the facts are. Um, <laughs> that's
1: true we, that's and that's why we tend to go hands off a little bit on that one and honestly some questions we, we kind of get a sixth sense after a while and everybody on the hotline is pretty good at reading people sometimes the facts you're getting fed are mm, intentionally slanted in one direction or the other so a lot of times we kind of discount you know if if in this case for example their interest is to get it listed get it on the market make their seller happy you know we'll kind of. Maybe discount that and always throw in the, the warning despite if they you know if they say it's clearly over money. But
0: yeah. what about questions asking for interpretations of the far bar contract, which is, I think, probably the most predominant contract form that is used statewide, even though there are a lot of other forms that are used in different areas, but do you get Questions from uh, real estate agents or brokers asking you to help them interpret provisions of the FARBAR contract?
1: Oh, all the time. All the time. Yes, that's a uh, there's some core things that I'd say we're. That's our bread and butter. We can confidently talk in great detail about these issues. And that's one of them. Far bar contract and license law issues, I'd say were at the core of of what we can field confidently. As you go further away, like for example, if you get into a complicated uh tax issue, well, we're probably not gonna touch that one at all. <laughs> but um but yeah, absolutely we do. And to the point where a lot of times there, there are some sections of the contract I could just recite from memory because I've talked about them so often. Um, and, you know, I just did one last night. I was watching a movie and I guess I wasn't really that into it. I saw an email pop up about a question on the condo rider. Some of your members may have encountered sort of, you know, what exactly does the seller have to disclose when it comes to levied or pending special assessments? I saw that come up and I said, I'm not that into this movie. So, <laughs> Next thing I did was an hour later, and I'd cranked out arguments on both sides, and I said, "I think there's a room for both arguments, so yes, we're uh, to the to a pinpoint well, here's where the ambiguities lie. Yes, we talk about that contract in great detail.
0: Do you have uh questions about calculating time periods, particularly in the context of did my buyer term did the buyer terminate on time loan commitment approval dates?
1: Yes. And that's one, boy, um, There, here, I said there are some themes that run throughout all of our calls. This is one of them where, where I will frequently, especially when it comes to counting days, point out, I can give you the rule, I can explain how it works, but don't mistake what I say with a fact-specific legal conclusion. I haven't seen your contract. I haven't double-checked to verify this. So yes, counting dates is something that for good or bad, um, it seems to have fallen on their plate over time. They, 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 you know, It's something they do. Some people have a formal procedure where they write up a data critical list, others do it informally. Many of them, including the consumers, feel like they need to give dates. So When we get these, I usually caution them that it's not as easy as they might think. There, there's these gaps in their knowledge, like what's the difference between a counter offer and an amendment to a contract? That's not something they're really taught. So sometimes we stumble across these things. And say, well, wait a minute. That sounds like you already had a contract and it was amended to, to put something that needed to be there. You know, and and cal- and there's a lot of moving parts. So dates, yes, they ask a lot about them, um, and we will explain as much as we can. It's a surprising number of things you have to know. You know, uh, the, the counteroffer versus amendment is one issue. The other is how's the effective date. How do you calculate it? And that's per contract. A lot of times they just think all contracts are the same, um, you know, and the third part is reading standard F in the contract, and then the, the fourth part is reading the actual clause to make sure it's after, number of days after the date. So there, there's a lot of moving parts, but that is a another one of our frequent flyers. So we just have a very
0: few minutes left, Joel. Um, any other areas you want to quickly touch on that I haven't given you the time to mention?
1: <laughs> no, that's okay. I think that gives a good flavor of what we do. Um, I guess what I'd say is I, I consider myself privileged just to just to do this job. It's I tried a bunch of different things. My first job was litigating in in the uh, for the Marine Corps uh, doing a little criminal defense, and boy, I did not like the stress and sort of the constant battlement that is litigation. I didn't enjoy it. Um, and then doing, I did enjoy you know working as a real estate attorney uh, downtown but the it was it was during that time as the the great recession was ramping up and it just the deals evaporated and i had to go somewhere and i kind of landed here by chance 10 years ago um, and boy i just i guess to tell you that story about last night i just enjoy it i enjoy kicking these ideas around doing the research uh, trying to be helpful and trying to find a way to communicate uh, important messages and keep our members safe. So that's just sort of my, I guess, <laughs> positive takeaway uh, as how I view what we do. Um, when they use our service right, we can be a tremendous tool. So that's, that's my overall.
0: Well, thank you so much uh, for being here. And, and please understand that everybody here at the fund, um, we so appreciate uh, you and the others over there at Florida Realtors. I think of you all as such a professional group, um, people that set a very high standard uh, for all of your members, um, and you do a great job for your constituents, uh, no doubt about it. So uh, I know you're busy, and so again, I appreciate your taking the time today to talk with us. And with that, we will wrap up today's webinar. Uh, Thank you so much for listening in. And I'll remind you that we will push the audio content out on our podcast title now. So that's another way for you to catch this really good information that we shared today. Um, And stay tuned for future topics um, and uh, look forward to sharing our knowledge and our uh, guest speakers' knowledge with you in the future. And as always, Thank you for your support of the fund.